Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. The whole team is here today for this very special episode. COVID is now a worldwide pandemic. Unfortunately, some countries have been disproportionately affected. The heroes in these hotbeds are working night and day to serve their communities. We stand to learn a great deal from their experience and guidance. One such hero is Dr. Gianluca Pontone, a cardiologist facing this crisis in Milan, Italy. He shares his firsthand experience on cardiovascular disease and COVID, as well as his impassioned plea for social distancing to curb the spread of infection. Friends and cardio nerds, this episode was recorded on March 20th, 2020. The COVID story is rapidly unfolding and information is quickly outdated. Misinformation is pervasive. We urge you to stay up to date with professional societies like the American Medical Association, the American College of Cardiology, the European Society of Cardiology, and responsible organizations like the World Health Organization and the Center of Disease Control, and of course, your government officials. As always, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardio nerds. We also wanted to offer a special thanks to Dr. Will Jaber from the Cleveland Clinic, as well as Dr. Danilo Neglia and Dr. Alessio Gimelli, our colleagues working hard in Pisa, Italy, for introducing us to Dr. Gianluca Pantoni. And speaking of Dr. Jaber, he is a personal mentor and truly one of the most well-read and interesting people I know. Just yesterday, he sent our fellows an email titled, The Plague and Our Job. He speaks of a book, The Plague, written by Albert Camus, published in 1947. Dr. Jaber writes that this book is considered a canonical novel in French and world literature, and referred us to a New York Times article by Hélène de Poton, the link to which will be on our website. I will share an excerpt on Camus reflecting on the broader definition of a plague, really more of a susceptibility to sudden death, an event that can render our lives instantaneously meaningless. And I quote from this article, this is what Camus meant when he talked about the absurdity of life. Recognizing this absurdity should lead us not to despair, but to a tragicomic redemption, a softening of the heart, a turning away from judgment and moralizing to joy and gratitude. In today's COVID era, we cardio nerds are beyond grateful for the ways in which the world has gotten smaller, the ways in which people, figuratively, are standing together with a singular mission of supporting humanity through this crisis. It is with this in mind that we turn to our heroes abroad to guide us through this. Dr. Gianluca Pontone, we would like to welcome you today and express our sincere gratitude and appreciation for you taking the time to speak with us. We know that Italy has been particularly affected by COVID-19, now with higher mortality rates than China. We hope that your insights today will help providers around the world and particularly the U.S. as we gear up to face what's to come. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to join. To start us off, we'd love to kind of get a sense of who you are, what your training has been, what your role is as a cardiologist in Italy. Can you kind of tell us more? 
Yeah, my name is Gianluca Pontone, as you told before, and my current position is Director of Cardiovascular Imaging Department of Centro Cardiologico Monzino, that is a heart center dedicated to cardiovascular disease in Milan and joined with the University of Milan. Great. And how has your job description and role been before the COVID-19 pandemic hit and what is it like now? Yeah, uh, of course, my department is uh, um, uh, the cardiovascular imaging department in which all imaging modalities are combined to uh, perform a good evaluation of cardiovascular disease. This was uh, the main aim of our job uh, up to one month ago. As you can imagine, with the increase of prevalence of uh, pneumonia related to the COVID infection, of course, the two uh, scenarios are now overlapped. So our imaging techniques are now totally focused to distinguish the clinical scenario related to pneumonia versus clinical scenario related to the cardiovascular disease. And in a lot of occasions, the two scenarios are combined in the same patient. So for this reason, now we need to have and to merge both both competence in the field of chest CT and in the field of cardiovascular imaging, of course. Right, right. I can imagine that it can be confusing to tease out cardiac and pulmonary presentations with how patients from COVID are presenting. Um, Your expertise must be really helpful in this regard when it comes to imaging. Yeah, totally agree. So I want to jump right into our discussion about COVID-19 specifically. We're sure you're seeing a lot of cases, of course, in Italy. What types of presentations are you seeing and what's the spectrum of disease severity there? Yes, uh, this is an interesting point. It's important to clarify uh, one thing before. Uh, Actually, our system is organized to distinguish COVID hospital versus not COVID hospital. The role of my hospital in this network actually is to be an cardiology hub. So we are the hub for a large area of the north of Italy for cardiovascular indication. So it's uncommon that the patient with COVID are directly transferred to our hospital. What we are seeing now is that in patients who are referred to our hospital for cardiovascular reason, any kind of clinical indication, we found a lot of situations in which pneumonia is present despite there are no evident clinical symptoms related to pneumonia. And this is a very important um, mirror uh, about the prevalence of this disease in our region at the moment. Because one thing is to to find pneumonia in symptomatic patient. One thing is to find pneumonia in patient who has no symptoms related to chest disease. And uh, this is exactly what we are seeing now. And this is the reason why we are pushing a lot to rule out the presence of pneumonia by using imaging technique and not only by using um, pharyngeal swap. So how are you, what is your current algorithm for use of imaging? What imaging techniques are you using specifically to evaluate these patients? Yeah, actually, we need to distinguish between two different groups, outpatient and inpatient. Regarding to the outpatient, uh, these kind of subjects usually are evaluated with a pre-triage before to arrive to the hospital in which we check some um, basic parameters, fever, uh, exposure to subject with the proved COVID-19 and so on. 
If this patient has no these characteristics, usually they are accepted to come inside the hospital for uh, in the visiting room or to do some diagnostic test by using a surgical mask. And we don't use a specific uh, test to rule out the presence of COVID-19. Of course, at the moment, we are just evaluating health patient in which is not possible to have a delay in diagnostic test. And this is the group of outpatient. Regarding to the inpatient, I mean the patient who are referred to the emergency room in which there is an indication for hospitalization, in all these patients at the moment we use pharyngeal swap to rule out the presence of COVID-19 infection. And based on that, then we decide if they can be accepted in hospital or not. In case it is approved the COVID infection and the patient has no need for hospitalization due to cardiovascular disease, but he needs hospitalization for pneumonia, in this case, we refer to another center who is managing just the patient with the pneumonia. In case this patient has cardiovascular disease and we need to keep the patient in our hospital, we have a dedicated area of the hospital for this kind of patient. Regarding to the diagnostic test, behind the pharyngeal swap, if there is a clinical presentation for pneumonia, so I mean fever, cough, uh, dyspnea, of course, Usually we are using a chest X-ray, but also a chest CT. Uh, this is a very controversial point because the general guidelines actually does not suggest to use the chest CT in this kind of a setting and just to use the combination of swap plus chest X-ray. Our experience at the moment is that the pharyngeal swap and chest X-ray could be not enough sensitive to identify pneumonia cases. And this is because in our region there is a high prevalence of disease. And so for this reason, we are using a lot chest CT to identify this kind of a patient. And is it just based on the high suspicion? Those individuals with a normal chest X-ray or pharyngeal swab in whom you still have high suspicion for yes. disease? Yes, exactly, Colin. Just one example to better clarify. If you have a patient with high fever and a chest X-ray negative or suspected, we do, of course, the swap. But if it is, regardless if it is positive and negative, usually we do chest CT because we have found a not negligible percentage of patients with negative swap and clear evidence of interstitial pneumonia with a chest CT. And in a subgroup of this patient in which we have repeated after one, two or three days, the pharyngeal swap, it was positive after two days. Mm-hmm. So the point is that uh, we cannot consider in our experience, of course, because the international data tell us something different. But in our local experience, uh, usually when the chest CT is positive, even in case of a negative swap, we manage this patient as positive for COVID-19 infection. Dr. Pontoni, thank you so much for walking us through your diagnostic algorithm and the need to uh, have a lower threshold for reaching for a chest CT because of an increased sensitivity. I do want to clarify the way in which you're using the nasopharyngeal swab. And I ask because here in America, one of the challenges we're facing is a limited availability of these testing. And so in many places, they're restricting the testing to patients who are symptomatic and some places are even using age cutoff. So what is your availability for the nasopharyngeal swab? And um, are you having 
having specific criteria for using it? Yes, there are two different opposite uh, strategies at the moment in the world. Some site, some country in which the extensive use of swap was proposed and some country in which the a restrictive use of swap just in symptomatic with fever and dyspnea patient. Uh, it depends in which phase of epidemia you are. What I mean? In the actual situation of Italy, I don't believe that the extensive use of swap makes sense because probably we have thousands and thousands of people positive who has no symptoms. And this means that when you have a positive swap, you have to stay at home. But actually, according to the local decision, everybody has to stay at home. So you don't change the management of people if you have... I a- see. The problem is that when you have a patient, a subject with a negative swap, this is not enough to authorize the subject to have a normal life because the swap can be negative today, but it can have the infection after three days. So in other words, when there is a pandemic phase, swap cannot influence your decision to stay, to keep everybody at home. That is the point. Where is mm. Where is important to use an extensive use of swap? When you are really at the beginning of the infection, because in this case, you can check immediately at the time point zero how many people has the infection. And based on this number, you can decide to start with the very restrictive rules in the social life at the beginning. That is important to stop any kind of contact between the people when you have still a few of the people with infection. And the extensive use is usually useful at the beginning of the phase, not in the middle, not in the end of the phase. That is my opinion on that. That's wonderful, Dr. Pontone. I think you bring up uh, an important point that, you know, given we're, we're all probably going to face limited resources with testing. Uh, really deciding whether or not a test will change the course of your management, change how that particular individual is going to be treated with regards to isolation and whatnot, and understanding that if you're going to sort of self-contain yourself anyway, it probably there isn't a role for, for testing that individual anyway. If, if I can add one comment on that, probably the extensive use of swap will be important uh, when the storm will be passed. I mean, if we have restricted rules and everybody are at home, nobody goes to work and so on, and the number of cases disappeared, the extensive use of swap could be very useful to decide when to start uh, with a normal life again. In that phase, it could be important uh, as well. And what about retesting? At the moment, uh, we are discussing on that. There are no still clear rules on this point, but uh, I believe that the uh, the clinical situation, symptoms and imaging guide your decision. Uh, so, I mean, uh, if you have a patient with symptoms of pneumonia and chest imaging positive for, for pneumonia and the first swap negative, we suggest to retest after two, three days uh, uh, again because we believe that there is a good uh, percentage of patients in which the first swap was a false negative and you can find positivity in the second test. Okay. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit about specifically cardiovascular manifestations. You mentioned earlier that your hospital is, is your hospital specifically geared towards COVID-19 patients with cardiovascular disease? 
Yes, yes, we are hub for cardiovascular disease in the network of COVID-infected patients. Okay. So in patients with COVID-19, what are you seeing among those with baseline cardiovascular disease? Yes, okay. We have a couple of general considerations that we can uh, do at the moment. Um, uh, first of all, everybody has, uh, knows now that the mortality of uh, COVID-19 is mainly related to the presence of comorbidity. And uh, the majority of this comorbidity are related to cardiovascular disease. So uh, this means that the scenario that we have now is a bit different as compared to the past because we have the same population in terms of cardiovascular disease with the additional risk in terms of outcome related to the pneumonia. That is the first consideration that we need to share. The second point, the cardiovascular disease we are observing are the same or not. This is a very interesting topic. Uh, what we are observing now, we are not still structured data, so this is at the moment just an impression, is that uh, the number of assess to our hospital for acute coronary syndrome is uh, reduced at the moment. Uh, the first uh, comment that we did in the last days was, uh, it's fun, it seems that the COVID-19 pandemic is protective in favor of a myocardial infarction or a stable angina and so on. But now, in the last days, we are changing our mind because we are discovering that there is an increase of patients who are referred to the hospital with the late presentation of myocardial infarction or some or other similar disease because they are scared to go to the hospital because the hospital are mainly focused on COVID-19. So my impression is, is that the incidence of acute coronary syndrome could be the same, but there is an increase of late presentation. And this is the second comment on that. The third comment that is important to underline is the overlapping between myocarditis and COVID-19 infection. We have just found an increase of the myocarditis in the last two weeks as compared to the similar period of the last year. And uh, we believe that there is an overlapping between these two diseases. The main problem at the moment is that it's extremely challenging to do a cardiac MR in an infected patient. And so it's difficult to prove the presence of myocarditis with CMR in this patient. So this is at the moment just a clinical suspicion. The fourth comment is that we are observing an increase of patients with suspected acute coronary syndrome who are referred to the CAT lab and we don't find any disease at coronary arteries. We suspect that all these patients have an increase of troponine, high-sensitive troponine related to the concomitant myocarditis. And so uh, this is the fourth aspect that we need to keep inside to keep in mind. Dr. Pantone, I want to thank you for helping us raise awareness for the multitude of cardiovascular implications of COVID-19. I think we're learning more and more. I, I do just want to ask a quick question about your framework for differentiating viral myocarditis in this context from myocardial injury from, say, demand ischemia. How are you making that distinction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very difficult uh, at the beginning of the history of the patient. Just one simple example. When the patient is referred to the emergency room for dyspnea plus chest pain, usually the rule out of acute coronary syndrome that we apply in Italy and all Europe is the European Society Cardiology Algorithm, in which we use the high sensitive troponin I at the baseline and after one or um, three hours. Okay. 
Uh, that is the usual workflow. Based on this, we classify the patient as having or not a Q-Corny syndrome. And based on that, we decide if we need an uh, urgent basic corneal angiography or we can do the invasive corneal angiography by the next 24 hours. This is the usual workflow. The problem is that the troponin, high-sensitive troponin high is, is increased in a lot of patients with pneumonia for COVID-19. We don't know if it is related to pneumonia or concomitant myocarditis, but the result is that high-sensitive troponin high is not so useful to take a decision in this patient. We can just use uh, EKG without use of biomarkers. So there are a lot of uh, uh, there is a lot of overlapping between suspected HHS and patient with no HES, uh, which is the logistic problem that this patient has COVID-19 infection. We know that there is the infection. And as you know, to do a cat lab in a patient with infection can create a lot of logistic problem. For this reason, we are thinking to increase the use in this patient in which we can wait a bit to have cat lab to use cardiac CT because cardiac CT is very robust to rule out the presence of coronary artery disease and at the same time, there are a new protocol to rule out the presence of myocarditis in this patient. So one technique for both aims. We can do it this way. We can do the ruling out of coronary artery disease and eventually the presence of myocarditis. And so we can skip cat lab, avoiding a lot of logistic problems. If CT is positive for critical lesion of the coronary arteries, then we can go ahead with cat lab. And we can do this in a short period because we have a dedicated scanner for cardiac CT for the patient infected in our hospital. And this helps us a lot. Dr. Pantone, I really, I really want to thank you for going over your process for triaging the use of cath labs because it is such an important discussion for protecting the healthcare workers as well as other patients. Um, going back to the biomarkers, when are you checking biomarkers for myocardial injury and how often? Because there's the situation of a patient where maybe they come in for a presumed cardiac event, but then there is also a situation where a patient may, during the middle of their course, start developing cardiac injury. Yeah. Yeah, at the moment, uh, we have a restrictive approach. I mean that uh, uh, if the patient has no suspected symptoms for uh, uh, cardiac disease, we don't do the uh, myocardial biomarkers for all patients. Because as I told you, troponin I is extremely uh, confounding on that. So in case we have an, uh, uh, symptoms and AKG suspicion of uh, acute coronary syndrome, in this case, we use. Sometimes uh, having clear evidence of acute coronary syndrome, so there is a, a typical course of uh, biomarkers, sometimes Sometimes we have a confounding situation, and in this uh, second scenario, as I told you, uh, we use uh, we can use as support cardiac CT. Dr. Bantoni, uh, you mentioned earlier that, that there's this late presentation with regards to MI, and I understand that we are obviously learning a lot about the virus collectively and uh, internationally, really. Do you have any like hypothesis as to why these patients are presenting later and why you and your colleagues have switched your mo- mind of thinking? Like, What's going on with that? Yes, I, I believe that the, this is, of course, my interpretation. I believe that it is mainly related to the social situation. I mean, at the moment, there are rules in Italy in which everybody has to stay at home in all country. So uh, we have just uh, the people are going to work uh, just if they are fundamental for basic services of our community. So the majority of the patients are at home. 
This means that uh, some uh, social trigger like sport, uh, exercise, stress uh, um, during the uh, usual life are disappearing. And so in this way, we have less trigger for the onset of myocardial infarction. And this is the first consideration. The second consideration is that when the people have chest pain at home, there is probably the trend to avoid to call the emergency services immediately, as usually they do in normal life, because they know that the emergency services is overbooked at the moment. And at the same time, because the people are a bit scared to go to the hospital because they they, they, they think that there is a potential risk of infection. So I believe that this social aspect can influence the decision of the patient to call medical support too much late. That's very interesting, Dr. Pantone. In light of that, are you seeing more complications, uh, such as mechanical complications with these late presentations, or is that something that you're concerned about seeing? That is an interesting point. You have to consider that our region in Lombardia is a really well-developed area in terms of healthcare system, and therefore prevalence of late revascularization in our region in the normal period is very, very um, uncommon. And as a consequence, for us, it's very uncommon to have mechanical complication of the ST elevation myocardial infection. Now we are observing the opposite situation because a lot of these patients arrived when the symptoms are extremely important or in some cases also in patients who arrived to our attention when they are in cardiac arrest. And the mechanical complications are, of course, increasing. This is the reason why we are pushing above the message that when there are some symptoms, to not be scared to call the emergency uh, services because then we can evaluate case by case if we can uh, suggest to stay at home or if they need to come to the hospital. Because, of course, the cardiovascular disease are here as well, and despite there is the COVID-19. Dr. Patoni, you had mentioned earlier that because of obviously the restrictions on CMR or cardiac MRI, we're not going to be able to definitively rule in myocarditis. Um, and obviously, sometimes you just have elevated troponin markers. But we were wondering, what is the kind of presentations that you're seeing that you're going to make an empiric diagnosis of myocarditis? Are you seeing patients coming in with cardiogenic shock or progressive arrhythmia? Yeah. In our experience of the last two weeks, the main presentation is a ischemic uh, scenario. We had some cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, and the patient uh, died, unfortunately, we decided to not do um, autopsy in this patient, but there is a nice suspicion that in the last case, uh, it was a case of fulminant myocarditis because the patient comes from one area in which there is the highest prevalence of COVID-19 in the world at the moment. And it was a young patient and therefore low chance to have other concomitant disease. So, uh, two scenarios are the most common, uh, fulminant myocarditis, but we cannot be sure that uh, uh, because myocarditis is not proven, and the scenario of ischemic presentation in this patient, we are uh, proving that there, are, uh, there is myocarditis. Wow, that sounds like a very profound uh, presentation, and I'm sure very difficult to manage among all the other things that are related to the pandemic. 
So especially when it comes to the profound myocarditis and, and other cases of uh, cardiopulmonary circulatory collapse, what is your experience uh, or have you been using uh, mechanical circulatory support such as ECMO or other strategies to help patients get through this? Yes. Uh, in terms of management of the cardiac arrest, uh, as you can imagine, uh, nothing changed because if the patient needs to receive ECMO or mechanical ventilation from our side and our perspective, nothing changes if this patient is positive or negative for COVID infection. What is important is to work in a safety context in this situation. And so for this reason, we have dedicated a specific area of the hospital to assist this patient in case there is a positivity for COVID. Oh, wow. Thank you. And then with regards to the myocarditis and diagnosis, I'm presuming that we're not doing a lot of endomyocardial biopsies, or am I uh, incorrect to make that assumption? No, no, this is correct. At the moment, it's extremely difficult to propose a biopsy, endomyocardial biopsy in patients with the infection of COVID-19. So the effort is to prove the presence of myocarditis with a different approach. Uh, CMR is a Technically feasible, but there is uh, some logistic problem related to the approach how to clean the CMR scanner because uh, we have a dedicated uh, robot to clean the uh, surgical room and so on. But a lot of these machines are not compatible with the magnetic uh, field. And therefore, uh, this is not possible for um, cardiac magnetic resonance scanner. On the contrary, CT has not this kind of problem. So this is the reason why we are trying to increase the use of CT uh, to rule out myocarditis in this patient. Oh, that's very helpful. And I, and, uh, I presume for, for CT, it might be more effective, obviously, if your patient population is coming in as younger patients and you really have a lower suspicion. But for the older patients, I, assume, I imagine that that could be very challenging given uh, prior calcification or prior cardiac work like bypass or stents. Yes, this is partially true because uh, this is a complicated if we discuss about uh, uh, the rollout of cornea after disease. But the presence of a calcification or a stent does not affect the uh, capability of CT to rule out the presence of myocarditis in the myocardium. So for this second aim, you can use. Of course, this is an off-label indication because CT uh, showed some, uh, there are some preliminary data in the literature about the capability of CT to rule in and rule out myocarditis, uh, but this is not still approved indication. We have a good experience on that and uh, we have a, probably also the good, the good scanner to do this and so now we are trying to use our this previous experience in this specific challenging situation. And you mentioned CT, uh, you know, usually where we can often be limited in the setting of renal dysfunction. And I understand that with COVID-19 presentations, you often can get acute kidney injury. Has that limited you in any way in the pursuit of CT as an imaging modality? Yeah, uh, of course, uh, it depends uh, about the uh, renal situation and about also the scanner that you have, because uh, you have to consider that the technology helps you a lot in terms of uh, your dyna amount that you have to use to scan this patient for cardiovascular disease. 
consider that if you have a last generation scanner, you can have a good image quality of the arterial phase of cardiac CT with 30, maximum 40 milliliter of uh, uh, iodine. And this is a very small amount. And therefore, um, I believe that we cannot consider the renal insufficiency in this emerging situation an absolute contraindication. Of course, you have to check case by case, but you have not considered this as an absolute contraindication. That makes a lot of sense. I just kind of want to summarize so that I'm clear on this. So what we're talking about is that in making the diagnosis of myocarditis, it's helpful to get coronary CT to kind of rule out ACS as the cause of a troponin elevation in a patient with confusing symptoms like dyspnea, chest pain. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah. That is correct interpretation. Great. Thank you. And then kind of going along those lines of myocarditis, um, are you using inflammatory markers to help guide your decision-making like CRP, ESR? Are you checking them and how often? Is that helpful? Yeah. Yes, of course we use, but uh, like for high-sensitive troponin, it's a problematic with a concomitant infection because a lot of these myomarkers are not specific for uh, uh, myocardial inflammation, but they are just specific for inflammation in general. Uh, what we are observing that the common condition uh, in patients with COVID-19 is to have low white cells in the blood, okay? This is important because if you have an inflammatory state with a patient with normal or high white blood cells, this is not the typical pattern of COVID-19 infection because if you have an increase of inflammation due to COVID-19, it's common to have low number of white blood cells. Uh, so this is the only rule that we are trying to apply in our mind in this uh, preliminary experience with this virus. Mm, that's interesting. So you're using really like a leukocytosis as more of a yeah. rule out. Correct. Yeah. Dr. Pantoni, I want to piggyback on this and even beyond myocarditis, the ACC webinar describing the Chinese experience describes this as a viral sepsis with a whole body cytokine storm and multi-organ injury. And I'm wondering, is there guidance for you and your colleagues in terms of using biomarkers and use of anti-inflammatories like steroids or tocilizumab, IL-6 inhibitor therapy uh, in that regard? Yes, at the moment there are a lot of different scenarios that we are evaluating. Of course, it's, uh, there is no time to describe all, all potential situations. At the moment, in addition to the usual biomarker for any kind of infection, what you can do is the dosage of some cytokine, like, for example, interleukin-6 in the blood of the patient. Usually, this kind of dosage could be useful because, as you know, there is a new drug, monoclonal antibody, that in some site they are trying to use against this kind of infection. But this seems to be work just in, increase, in case of increase of the interleukin. So this kind of dosage are usually just done in the hospital where this kind of uh, experimental study are approved. And this is not the case of our hospital. Dr. Pantoni, I'd like to turn this discussion um, on the way in which you're using your resources. I'll preface this with that I just read this perspective by Lisa Rosenbaum and the NEJM. It really talks about the ways in which people are forced to make decisions about resource allocation and things like mechanical ventilation in these sick patients. And we are talking right now about scarce resources, yeah. Yeah, yeah. ventilation, ECMO, ICU beds. And a lot of us are very anxious about uh, having to make these same decisions very soon. So what is what has been your approach and experience with triaging the use of yeah. these life-saving? Okay. 
this is important point that probably is the most critical point of the actual situation in Italy. As you know, uh, the main problem and the mortality of this disease is mainly related to the, to the difficult use mechanical ventilation when the patient needs. In other words, if the patient has an indication for mechanical ventilation and you cannot uh, do this because you don't have availability for that, uh, that is uh, one of the main reasons for the potential risk of death. This is a critical point because, of course, we know the number of the increase of the infection. We know the percentage of patients who could have need for mechanical ventilation. And we know how many of these uh, of seats in, uh, in intensive care unit we have in our region. That is the main problem. At the moment, uh, there are a lot of uh, news on the newspaper and so on about the need to decide who has the right for ventilation or not. At the moment, and uh, fortunately, these are just title for the newspaper because at the moment in our region, despite the situation is critical, the mechanical ventilation when there is indication is still guaranteed to all people who has indication for uh, that. Of course, the scenario could change if we fill whole um, intensive care unit that we have in our region and uh, there is a potential risk to do a selection. But I really hope and I cross my finger for that, that we will never arrive at this stage. So for this reason, my message is that at the moment, the uh, indication for mechanical ventilation are uh, the same of the um, period before the COVID infection. Thank you, Dr. Pantoni. Thank you so much for sharing all of your experiences. I'm really glad that you haven't had to face the triage issues that are we're concerned that they're coming to us. Um, you had mentioned that your hospital is just for COVID patients. So it sounds like one of the ways that you've limited the spread between patients and amongst providers is just dedicating like COVID north and non-COVID wards. Um, what other ways are you trying to limit the spread between patients and among healthcare workers? Uh, yes, uh, the two aspects are extremely connected. As I told you before, we have split the hospital in two areas, uh, one area for COVID and one, uh, one area for no COVID patient. And this is true not only for uh, uh, words, but also for uh, diagnostic uh, department. Uh, we are uh, in a lucky position because we have multiple scanner and so on. So we can have dedicated scanner for the patient with the pneumonia and the patient without uh, infection. And this is regarding to the uh, organization of the hospital. In agreement with this kind of organization, we have split the workers and there are some staff of people who are dedicated for COVID patients and uh, part of our staff who is mainly dedicated for non-COVID patient to avoid any kind of shunt between these two sections of patient in the hospital and avoiding any kind of shunt among the healthcare personnel as well, because in this way we limit the diffusion of virus. You have to consider that, of course, we check the workers of our hospital with the, um, uh, pharyngeal swap, and of course, just people with negative swap are working at the moment. But you have to consider that we know that is negative in a certain timeline, but we cannot guarantee that in uh, one day or two days after uh, the doctor will become positive because the, uh, uh, all physicians come back at home, they have anyway social contact with their family, and uh, despite now the risk to have the infection is very low because everybody are at home, anyway, we cannot exclude this. So the most important thing is to keep separate people, 
patient and area of the hospital in 12. Thank you for that, Dr. Pontoni. And I, in terms of protecting our healthcare workers, in addition to social distancing and keeping separate wards, what has been your approach to personal protective equipment there? Yes, at the moment, there are specific and clear indications from the Ministry of Health uh, of Italy uh, in which there are two different levels of protection. I mean, people who are working in hospital uh, in an area where there are no known patients with COVID-19, uh, it's enough to use uh, gloves and surgical uh, mask, and that should be enough. And this is true for doctors, uh, nurses and patients as well. So all patients, even if they don't have any kind of infection and we have the proof that there is no infection, they use the surgical mask anyway. And this is for no infected area. For the infected area, for the workers who are in contact with this patient and specifically the subset of workers who has to do any kind of healthcare manoeuvre in which there is aerosol, I mean, intubation, of course, transesophageal, echocardiography, or similar procedure. In this case, we have a higher level of protection that include mask with filter. So these are dedicated masks for that. Then the doctor has to keep a double goods on the ends. And the last but not the least, to use a waterproof medical gown. Uh, these are the three D DPI that we use. Hmm. I wanted to also ask about, you know, certain special populations. Uh, how are you handling special populations of physicians like pregnant physicians, the elderly, um, or even individuals that are particularly immunosuppressed like heart transplant patients? Yeah. Of course, uh, you have to consider that uh, our work in terms of uh, load uh, is increased in terms of uh, disease related to COVID-19, but is uh, decreased in terms of other uh, activities, for example, stable outpatient or uh, other kind of disease outside of cardiovascular. So uh, in this way, we, we are able to shift the people from one activity to another one. But the situation in our hospital is that at the moment, the total number of the doctors involved in activity is a bit lower as compared to the, the period in which we have regular activity. So in this way, we have used exactly these characteristics to select the doctors, uh, nurses, and so on who need to stay in the hospital. And so we are selecting, uh, for example, just one senior people with a group of junior people. They are usually younger. And of course, we are suggesting to premium workers or people with any kind of disease, oncological disease and similar disease to stay at home because it's more safe for them. So obviously the hospital is a place of a lot of learning and a lot of education. And in general, there's a lot of training going on. And I'm not sure if we said that if your hospital is a training hospital, but what has been the general stance when it comes to trainees like residents and fellows and medical students? How have you been incorporating them or having them not come? How have you been addressing that kind of balance between education and safety? Yeah. Uh, yes, we are an academic site, so we have a lot of training here in our hospital. Uh, the decision of our hospital, uh, differently from other sites, was uh, uh, to decide to keep uh, the lowest number of uh, physicians inside the hospital based on the clinical needs and to avoid to have other people 
here. So for this reason, unfortunately, the residents at the moment uh, who are not requested for specific clinical activity, they are suggested to stay at home in this phase. And we are just continuing with our educational activity in terms of formal lessons or uh, training on cardiac image, for example, with a remote assess. So we have all our lessons each day and the student and resident can be connected via web and we are doing this lesson each day. But in general, we have suggested them to not stay in the hospital at the moment. That makes a lot of sense, trying to protect as many physicians and trainees as we can. Um, I kind of want to transition to, as we wrap this up, to more your personal experience. And I'd like to ask you how you're really personally and emotionally like preparing to face each day. I can't imagine how challenging this has been for you. Yeah. Yes, it's fun. Yes. Um, uh, regarding to my personal experience and emotional experience uh, in this situation, uh, of course, it's difficult to describe if you don't uh, have a personal experience on that, because it has uh, happened for you probably when this kind of problem was mainly located in China and uh, we followed the update on the situation in China. Of course, uh, we realized that it was a serious situation uh, but it's different when you have that kind of situation in your country because the level of uh, attention uh, and uh, is completely changed. Uh, our social life is completely uh, changed. Uh, all people are uh, in the home all day. Just the uh, workers uh, uh, that are fundamental can go to uh, their work, like doctors, for example, but we spend all day in the hospital and then we come back at home. Uh, we stay usually separated from our family to limit the contact with them. So from emotional point of view, as you can imagine, is uh, not easy, of course. Uh, but we are uh, uh, convinced that uh, at the end, we will win uh, at the end of the storm. Dr. Batoni, has there been one moment in this entire crisis where you looked at yourself and you're like, wow, I am so proud of my team. I'm so proud of what we're doing, you know, despite everything that's going on. Yeah. Uh, all people here uh, in my hospital, but not only in my hospital, uh, there are some other hospitals uh, who are uh, identified as COVID centers. They are doing a lot of works. And my message is that the old people employed in healthcare system in Italy, in the north of Italy, are doing an excellent work, an excellent work. All people, physicians, nurses, technicians, uh, also the people involved in the logistic. Uh, so I believe that we are doing now an evidence uh, that our system is strong, robust, and full of people with um, a great capacity to work together. Thank you. It's really nice to keep in mind that there is beauty in some of the tragedy that's going on and how seeing people come together is such a lovely thing to witness. Um, Jen, I'd like to ask you, as, as we in the United States gear up to face this pandemic, what is your message for us? Based on our experience, the suggestion is to stop any kind of activity and to close everything before the storm starts. That is the total message that I can tell you. Uh, I want just to, I have one personal experience that I want to tell you. When we had the first two cases three weeks ago in a small town close to Milan, what I have observed in my town is that all shops, 
everything in the Chinatown, that is a specific area where I live, in Milan, everything was closed the day after. And the reason, and my interpretation now, was just the following one. I believe that the Chinese people who live in Italy, when they observe the first case in Italy, they contact their relatives, their authorities in China, and based on their experience, they understood that the only way to go out was to close immediately everything. In Italy and in our town, we don't do this. We wait one week, a bit more than one week, to take this very strong decision. And probably in that week happen uh, something that is uh, uh, the reason of the cases that we are having now. Uh, the only way at the moment to fight this virus is to control the social behavior and to limit any kind of contact between people. And if you take this decision in advance, you save a lot of time to go out from this situation. I think that's a perfect message uh, to, to leave us all with, Dr. Pontone. And I want to say that when all of this is over, uh, we're all going to come and visit you in Milan. And for now, uh, we we want to to send you our, our virtual hugs from across the pond. We're really so grateful uh, for your time and dedication to humanity and, and again, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. Don't forget to check out the amazing illustration that Kareen prepared for y'all at www.cardionerds.com. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to cardionerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hey, CardioNerds, I'm Nino, cardiology fellow at Hopkins and huge fan of your amazing work. My heart did flutter this week when my patient who sustained prolonged downtime after cardiac arrest opened his eyes and started to follow commands. Honestly, everyone, including myself, thought he would have no neurologic recovery, and I was so happy that I was wrong. It was incredibly humbling to support his family during this hard time, and when he woke up, shared the genuine joy with them. He now has secondary prevention ICD and continues to recover. This experience reminded me the true joy of medicine. I look forward to listening to future episodes and keep spreading the knowledge. Boop. Boop.